Welcome to the Calvary Couples Podcast. We are going to be in Jeremiah chapter 31. We're going to look through a little bit here, um, really the majority of the chapter here in Jeremiah chapter 31. We're going to look at something that is really vital um, in the life of a family. Uh, this is the Calvary Couples Podcast, and it seems appropriate that um, we highlight something that um, is absolutely necessary for healthy families, for healthy relationships, for healthy marriages, and that's the reality that there is joy in repentance. And repentance is a word that I don't know, I guess maybe strikes fear unnecessarily in the hearts sometimes of people. But really what repentance is, is a pushback of our natural response, which is pride. Repentance is the reality, uh, the humbling of oneself and uh, looking to um, another for forgiveness, um, looking for, looking to God uh, for love. And what comes from that is ultimately the thing that we're looking for, and that is joy. So Jeremiah highlights something for us that is essential in life and, and is absolutely necessary for relationships in general. That's the reality of repentance. Uh, the first thing that I really want to highlight here is that God restores joy and peace when his people repent of sin. And repentance isn't a, a, um, a necessary thing for mistakes. Uh, repentance is a turning away from wrongdoing. So uh, we uh, use different terms for sin like iniquity or trespasses. And uh, trespass is a good example or transgression because it it uh, confronts us with the reality that we know we know to do something good, but we choose not to anyways. Um, that would be the definition of a, of a transgression or a trespass. And uh, repentance is necessary for, for sin. It isn't necessary for oops or I'm sorry or this was a mistake or you know something unfortunate happened that really we hadn't planned on or um, just uh, those, those are the things that we, we, we take the First Corinthians 13 principle of uh, believing the best about somebody until proven otherwise. But repentance is necessary when, when sin is part of the relationship. So in verse 1 through 14, God speaks to Jeremiah of his plans. And what are his plans? His plans are to, res- to restore peace and joy to his people Israel. So there's this relationship that's happening. Uh, and, and, in, and in this context, in Jeremiah chapter 31, the relationship is God and his people Israel. And here's Jeremiah in the middle as the prophet, who is the mouthpiece uh, that God has determined to use for himself to speak to his people. So first, Jeremiah addresses the northern kingdom. So at this time, Israel is split into two kingdoms. You have Israel and you have Judah. And this area has already gone into exile for 136 years. So their relationship with God has been uh, stressed, to put it mildly. This, the southern kingdom rejected the northern kingdom as traitors, basically calling them Samaritans, uh, if you, if I can put it in that way, the Samaritans didn't necessarily exist yet, but that was kind of their mindset. But God had good news of restoration for them. So even though they're other brothers and sisters, right, this is the northern and southern kingdom, they're, they're the same ethnicity, they're the same people of God, but they're separate in the northern and southern kingdoms. One kingdom has rejected God and the other kingdom says, no, you're traitors, we don't need you anymore. But even God, in his good news, says, wait, 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 wait. In my uh, boundless love, there is restoration. And I think that's good for us to be mindful that we are never too far from God's love. We are never so far away that repentance won't immediately restore us back into relationship with God. Very important principle in the Christian life to understand and to take hold of. So verse 2 and 6 speak of building, planting, making merry. And those are all connected to walking in the ways of God. And contrary to popular opinion... Uh, it isn't a joyless exercise in drudgery to follow after the Lord. In fact, following after the Lord leads to joy, it leads to peace, and it leads to fulfillment. And David expresses this so well in the 23rd Psalm when he says that God leads us into the good grass. He leads us beside the still waters, the waters that we need. 
He protects us. And the wandering sheep is the one who ends up in, in distress or the one who ends up you know, in a thorn bush or um, worse, attacked by predators. And Jeremiah then uses the term vineyards, and he uses this uh, vineyard uh, illustration to describe peace and stability. A vineyard doesn't survive uh, without tranquility. It, it, it gets crushed in, in uh, the reality of war and of violence. And Jeroboam had built golden idols in Israel to keep the people from going to worship in Jerusalem. And God announced to Jeremiah a time when the people of the northern kingdom would employ watchmen to remind them of when it was time to go to worship in Jerusalem again. So God intended to do more than just restore the northern and southern captives. He intends to deal with both parts of the split kingdom. And we should pray and work for times of peace and stability in our homes and in our families and in our neighborhoods. And we need them in order to thrive and prosper just as vineyards do. We can survive and we can find common ground in the war and in the storm. But the reality is is that we need the times of peace and tranquility to really grow. And God's plan to restore included those who are ordinarily, that they didn't participate in the traveling and the building. These were people like the blind, the lame, the pregnant, um, those that were always working or laboring. God would indeed bring them back. As a tender father restores a wayward son, verses 7 through 9. Get to verse 10 through 14. Now God is addressing the whole earth. Repentance as it applies to the whole world. The nations, the coastlands frequently indicates the Gentiles, the people in faraway places. You see, God's love extends for all people. They too had an interest in what God would do to restore Israel. Because you see, without the restoration of Israel, there is one significant fact that remains undone. And that is that Jesus has not arrived on the scene. So rejoicing and plenty would mark the new life in Israel. Priests ate a prescribed portion of what the people brought to sacrifice. But in the restored Israel, the priests would have plenty to eat. You see, Rachel in verse 15 was the mother of Joseph, who was the father of Ephraim and Manasseh, from whom two of the larger tribes of the northern kingdom would come. And Jeremiah brought up the sorrow that the punishment of Israel and Judah's rebellion against God would have caused their ancestors. You see, Rachel's children would soon go into exile, and Ramah would indeed be a staging point for exiles, and Jeremiah himself would spend some time there after Jerusalem's fall. And I've used this passage before, and I think it's very powerful, but the reality of Rachel's weeping in Ramah that we read about, and then is described again in Matthew chapter 2 as Herod uh, destroys the children in Israel as he's trying to find the Christ child refers back to this passage in Jeremiah. Ramah has a few miles north of Jerusalem and served as the departure point for many of the exiles headed toward Babylon. You see, Bethlehem was a few miles south of Jerusalem and served as the lightning rod for Herod's fury after the birth of Jesus. Some scholars see a prophetic reference. Others see a reference that served to evoke in Matthew's day the same sense of terrible grief and loss that had taken over in Jeremiah's day. It seems that Jeremiah's phrase becomes a proverb used through the years whenever the Jews wanted to refer to the mistreatment of Jewish children. It's a powerful, poignant passage that reminds us that we must seek for peace and we must seek for the love of all people and hopefully push back until the Lord comes back, some kind of bring in some kind of justice and push back the hatred and the evil that often we see perpetuated against children. But if we come back to our uh, thought process here on repentance and what we're honing in on this subject, God had some good news. You see, even in the grief of national loss, you read verses 16 through 20, God, (coughs) excuse me, God comforted grieving Rachel and through her, he comforted her children. You see, there would be restoration and that's the joy of repentance. 
Israel would return from exile and God knew their grief. And more important, he knew their repentance. You see, God's love always endures. I think there's somebody today that probably needs to hear that. God's love always endures and he will gladly remember his wayward people and he remembers them not in judgment. He remembers them in mercy. Read verse 20. Israel and Judah had committed heinous immorality on a national scale, but still, after judgment and repentance, God showers them with mercy and grace. Our sin has most definitely hindered our relationship with God, and the consequences are severe. It makes him seem distant, but he hasn't left. He's the same place he always was. It is you and I who have moved away, and he yearns to be able to shower us with mercy and grace. Turning to God in faith and repentance really does change things, but what it really changes is us. He eagerly moves towards us to the good list, so to speak, and we will, and he will overwhelm us with his mercy. God's restoration is so certain that he instructed Israel to mark the way they went out because that would be the way that they would return. But sadly, the faithless daughter, which is the term used uh, in our text here, would be just as slow to believe God's promise of restoration as she was to believe his promise of judgment. She simply doesn't believe God at all. The new thing on earth seems to refer to a common proverb of the day about which the meaning is no longer clear. Many scholars take it to mean in general the weak. Israel's captives will overpower the strong, their captors. But that's still unclear. The reality is that we can take away that experiencing joy and peace comes from repentance of sin. And that leads us to walking in a right relationship with God. The second key takeaway here is that God desires to bless his people as they walk with him in a new promise, in a new covenant. So we turn from our sin in repentance. We put the old man away and put on the new man. And what is the blessing that comes from that? A renewed covenant with God. You see, he has wonderful plans for both Israel and Judah. And the remainder of the chapter build the case for that. Even though the land would be desolate and Jerusalem demolished, new inhabitants would fill both the land and the city, and they would thrive there. Apparently, God delivered this message to Jeremiah through a dream, and the dream of God's restoration must have been a very nice dream indeed. Verses 27 through 30 use the image of God's filling the land with people and animals as a farmer would fill soil with the seed for a rich harvest. And God had been working against them. He would now work just as hard for them. And oftentimes when God works against us, it is to keep us from the very thing that we desire. It seems like God is putting roadblock after roadblock, but what he's often doing is protecting us, putting consequences in our way to keep us from pursuing our own destruction, but he works just as hard for us. And as Judah is being deported, the few remnant who will still follow God went into exile, along with the idolatrous majority. But in the coming day, that would never happen. As we continue, Israel repeatedly broke the old covenant that God had established following the exodus from Egypt. In the New Covenant, God promised to work within the hearts of his people. You see, external prods like the law would encourage obedience, but eventually would lose their importance. People must obey from the heart. We can build within our homes and within our own lives an external set of rules that will, for a while, have the outcome of good moral behavior. But unless the reality of God's love penetrates the person, penetrates the heart, penetrates the very fiber of who we are. The simple uh, reality of God, God-likeness, right? Becoming like God, godliness is just simply not possible unless it becomes part of the fabric of our soul and our heart and who we are, overwhelmed by the love and the mercy and the grace of God. 
See, the Bible uses the term covenant often and uses it often enough that we should look pretty closely at it. You see, what is a covenant? A covenant is an agreement. It's a very solemn and important agreement. It's used in very specific situations, marriage being one of those places. In Abraham's time, people often marked a formal covenant through the sacrifice of an animal. Sliced down the middle, giving rise to the expression to cut a covenant with someone. This idea was in play in Genesis chapter 15 when Abraham cut up the sacrificial animal and waited for God to pass through the two parts, indicating the covenant. And God's covenant with Abraham promised that Abraham and his descendants would be his people. One of the most powerful covenants in the history of the world is God's promise to Abraham to be with him and to give him a people. And through him, through Abraham's seed, God would bless the whole earth through the person of Jesus Christ. So what's the importance of the new covenant to us? We should contrast it with the old covenant. The old one was broken by Israel many times over hundreds of years. But the new one would not rely on external rules and obligations. The new one would find its roots in what had always been the problem. My heart and your heart. The human heart itself. How would God plant his law within believers under this new covenant? How would he write it in our hearts? He would do it through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And many early Jewish believers found transition from the old to the new very difficult. Yet the New Testament writers were quite clear that Jesus Christ inaugurated the new covenant of both Jeremiah, see that all throughout the Gospels, passages such as Romans, and especially in Hebrews, point out that if the old covenant had been good enough, then God would have no need to introduce a new one. The old covenant of Moses' time was sealed in the blood of multitudes of sacrifices, and it continued over hundreds of years, but it never quite brought the hope of salvation because that hope only comes through the new covenant, which is sealed with the blood of Jesus Christ. His one sacrifice at the cross was all that was needed for the multitudes, for the whole world. God brought Jesus back to life, and this gives us assurance of new life as well. You see, we can now walk with God with his law in our hearts and not on our person, and that brings us great peace with him. Then, then God, as we, as we finish out this passage here, then God appeals to the rhythms and constances of the natural world to highlight his promise and goodwill for his people. The physical world came from our Lord. The Bible often uses examples from the natural order to underline important points. The rhythm of the sun, the moon, the stars would wear out long before God's love for us and God's love for Israel came to an end. You see, measuring the fullness of heaven and earth isn't possible. We've tried since the existence of humanity, and I imagine that we will never succeed. Neither is it possible for God to break his steadfast mercy. To make it very clear, God then referred to some of the parts of Jerusalem that would be rebuilt. He even promised to extend the city. You see, you and I have this new covenant with God. And this new covenant with God isn't through our obedience of external laws and rules. It is our embracing of the new covenant that is written in Christ's blood and the gift of his Holy Spirit that he has offered to us. And through that, we can find all spiritual blessing available to us. So I encourage you today, as you're listening, turn from sin in repentance and find joy again in your relationship with God. God hasn't moved. He's still in the same place he's always been. And then when we turn in repentance from our sin, we find again a refreshed, a new look at this new covenant that God has written on our hearts. And he says, I will be your God and you will be my people. I hope this lesson has been helpful and I look forward to studying with you next time here in the Calvary Couples Podcast.